Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my effervescent co-host Teos Abadia. Hey Teos, how you bubbling today? I'm bubbling away. I'm percolating to the top of the charts mm-hmm. <laughs> of your that's, hearts. That's I don't know. That's good. Yeah. I had a unique experience this weekend. I played in a game with the gaming group that I had played with in high school. Some of these folks had not played since first edition days, wow. uh, including the DM who I first played with, I want to say 35 years ago. Yeah. And it was a, it was cool because some of these folks obviously hadn't played second, third, fourth or fifth edition. So we're playing <laughs> fifth edition via roll 20 and they fell right back into the game as if they'd never left, but they fell right back into first edition. So it was kind of a, it was a unique experience to see these folks, you know, like we go into the shop and we're buying like every spike and every rope and every, yeah. yeah. And, and it's, you know, the, the big, the big goal is in front of us. You need to go to this keep and, and, and we spent three hours and we never left town (laughs) and spent, most of that time tracking down other leads. Now we have like 12 different places we could go. And it was such a first edition thing that was weird, but, but somehow refreshing Yeah, uh, to just sort of play this different style of game using a, a rule system that really doesn't expect <laughs> that sort yeah. of game to be played. So it was, it was kind of fun. Well, I'm jealous. I would love that. I would, I would murder to, uh, well, I wouldn't murder, but I would, I would do a lot to uh, get uh, a game with either my friends from uh, college, from the, the, you know, early college days, because I actually played with college friends first and then with ex high school friends more. Uh, But uh, so my college group, or even to go back into middle school with the group from Columbia, I'm, I'm in touch with one person from that group. But if I could get like, you know, three of them or something that would be just the coolest thing ever to just yeah and it'd be wild to think of like what would it be like to to try to run a more modernish game with them mm-hmm. i mean we had a player in there that really i think he was there literally for you know the private part jokes like that's his reason that was his motivation of play his character yeah. names were always you know some swear slash body part whatever thing and 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 just he was there you know just bsing throughout the entire experience and i doubt that has changed <laughs> Yeah. you know and oh, so I, I still have players like that so that is, <laughs> that's true yeah yeah but so that was fun and unique and speaking of fun and unique let's talk about our listener corner where we take messages comments questions from our listeners via twitter via mastodon via youtube via our website any way you can get get us and the first comes from Frequent asker chappy thoughts uh, via Mastodon. Uh, given the controversy over half elves and half orcs, is there any reason you couldn't just have an elf with a shield dwarf subrace, for example? I mean, if all races were expanded to have subraces, couldn't that solve the issue pretty neatly? And I think the the issue is that there are multiple issues here. It, the me- mechanics aren't the issue with a lot of with specifically with half elves and half orcs and other half races it's not a mechanical thing it's a societal thing it's our very real world and very human problems 
because of ideas and history of racial relationships are causing the problem, racial identity and so on. It's the things that people bring out of the real world and into the game that is problematic, not necessarily just the mechanics of of how these races work. So you can change the mechanics all you want until we understand and recognize these societal problems that have been brought into the game and in some places continue to be brought into the game. Then it doesn't matter what your mechanics are because that problem will still be rear its ugly head. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, the more that, and you know, sometimes you hear folks say like, this is never a problem in my game. And a lot of times it's not a problem at your game because you're not thinking about the issue. And so mm -hmm. you just plot along and life is great. Uh, but when you do think about it, it becomes tough. And I think that's where, you know, Jeremy Crawford saying that the team has long struggled with this and, and what it and implies. And, 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 it, and, and it's really just, you know, like I'm in generally I'm fine with it because I think that I can understand where the game is going what it's trying to provide and what it's trying to say and, and the outlet it's trying to let you do to play somebody who has this sort of conflict, right? But the base position of the game historically has been like, if you are a half elf, you are shunned by both people and belong to neither, mm -hmm. right? And as somebody who's from mixed parentage, uh, and I've had, you know, a lot of my life, especially earlier life when I was out in the sun a lot more and I can like crazy, is folks would say to me, what are you, right? What's your dad, mm -hmm. right? Or Things like that. And that kind of thing, you know, sometimes when you go to the game, the game sort of just hits you with the, and here's more of that. And you're like, well, I came to escape the reality of life, right? And and so how you feel about it is going to depend on on your lived history or who you've been friends with and how you've been able to see that, that issue. And so I agree, a lot of this is really societal. Yeah. Mechanically, mm -hmm. there are a lot of ways you can do it. But I think you quickly end up asking, well, why am I trying to do this mechanically um, if there's already the societal problem, right? So if I take away from halves and I simply say, can I be an elf that takes dwarven subrace subspecies benefits mm -hmm. uh, with the way that you sort of see in the cobalt press playtest packet? So that's a way to mix things up. But then why are they species traits if they're not really if anybody takes them, then shouldn't that just move to something else like and, and, and that's the problem is kind of what story are we trying to tell? How do we balance between wanting to tell great stories that create imaginative concepts? Right. I mean, I think it's really fun to think about the elven cities that are carved out of trees and some sort of harmony with nature that we can't even imagine achieving. That is a cool, beautiful picture and creates great play opportunities as long as you have the freedom to tell whatever elf story you want and to know that not all elves somehow fit some typecast, right? And mm -hmm. none of that is, is really achieved through the mechanics of it. And so I think you have to start with that story first. And then the mechanics really is what are we trying, what are these mechanics touching on? And then they should, they should work off of that basis. Right. What we did with Grim Hollow and Aurora, uh, Grim Hollow more specifically was say rather than being a race and pick your package of racial abilities and stats you're in a clan and you don't you can be from any race in that clan and here's a list of abilities that you can choose from so if you are a human and you are a member of this clan you might not have dark vision so don't take dark vision but take these other things you 
right rather than getting like a normal human a plus one to everything and and extra languages you get this because you're a part of this clan and you have your whole life trained in fishing so you're going to get a proficiency and you know with fishing tools or whatever hunting tools or whatever tools that you want to use and if you want to be a dwarf from that same clan take dark vision and then choose from this list maybe in this clan you are more of a uh you are more of a merchant rather than more of a hunter. So take these more merchant type things and proficiency with vehicles rather than with, with fishing. So yeah, that's, that's one way to do it. But, you know, part of the, part of the problem with this is that it's always been there in D and D it's been there since first edition, you choose your race. It's very easy to do. You can just write down this list of things and it's done. You don't have to pick and choose and think. Uh, so it's grappling with the the sacred cow of that way of game design, and you know the ease of just picking one thing and then getting a bunch of things from it. So it's not an easy topic to broach yeah. for game design reasons, for societal reasons, for storytelling reasons, for lots of reasons. Yeah, my my son and I were having this, and and my wife and I were having this sort of discussion around. Um... I forget what concept came up, but, but we were watching a show and we we're sort of like, well, it's like if you're making the show, like if you're trying to set up a character for the show and you're trying to say that they are of a certain income level, you're going to have them dress a certain way. You're going to have them act a certain way. And those are all stereotypes, but it's mm-hmm. what we do to quickly communicate to the brain that all of this works. And that's sort of what the rules are trying to do is, right? You're trying to say, I'm going to adopt this character. Uh, so therefore... If I just pile on tropes, boy, isn't that easy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's and so it makes perfect sense why the rules are written the way they are because they're trying to just launch you off into playing that stereotype, which is and it works either way. I mean, if you could be playing a robot, right? You're going to make this halting robotic voice, and you're just troping mm-hmm. off of robots who fortunately aren't a real thing that we have to worry about. But but yeah, and, and those are hard questions as to what extent you want to do that. But I I think a balance can be struck, but but the 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 halfness is is i think so it has so many problem I- issues that that i don't think a mechanical issue solves it yeah. um i think what the game yeah, is doing is probably as smart as it can be which is to say we're not going to have it as an entry in the book you can obviously use this custom lineage type approach to achieve that if that's what you want mm-hmm. So thank you for that question, Chappy Thoughts. And now to Graham Ward via our Patreon Discord. What do you think the default assumption of the game with regard to home design campaigns versus published adventures is? When we talk about a game, how much should published adventures factor into the discussion? Is it still true that the majority of groups don't play published scenarios? I'm thinking about the DMG and how it's clearly written with the assumption that the DM is an experienced person inventing their own scenarios and campaigns. Well, first of all, Graham, you're in luck because today we're going to talk <laughs> in our main section all about the Dungeon Master's Guide, both the current Dungeon Master's Guide and the one that Chris Perkins talked about being in the process of writing. So let's take one question at a time. What do you think the default assumption of the game is with regard to home design campaigns versus published adventures? I don't think the game itself makes any assumptions on whether the DMs are going to create homebrew worlds, homebrew adventures, 
use strictly published worlds and adventures or some variation of those to stealing things from, or I shouldn't say stealing because it's not leveraging other people's works. Uh, but I think we can look at some assumptions that the game does make and then sort of backwards look at this. I think the game assumes that the DM will either create or use something as a blueprint for the sessions they run and that the numbers that the game makes will be the numbers that they use. That's why things like difficulty class, things like uh, challenge rating for monsters are so important because the game does assume that you are going to use those in a way that gives a clear expectation for what the players must overcome. So you need to get to those numbers in some way and published content give, gets you the, that blueprint in a literal blueprint form. You have the adventure in front of you and the numbers are there and the plot is there and everything's there. Uh, I think the game also assumes, or at least the designers also assume that DMs will be making on the fly adjustments. And so we assume those adjustments are also being made to make the game more fun, more challenging, more entertaining to the players. Now, whether that's true ends up being a whole other discussion. But the published adventure should be a discrete example of what the game designers feel like the game should be and these adventures and these worlds and these scenarios should show. I'm going to stop there and let Teos have his little little take yeah, uh, my little takes you know i i'll disagree with you a bit in that I, I think that the dmg specifically it it takes an approach that is you really is you know part one master of worlds and we'll talk about this more but but the book is really it really is sort of helping you build a campaign and it's talking about things like what your pantheon should be and I think it did that looking back at the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons DMG as sort of its blueprint of how much that inspired people, right? DMs of, of, that started with that book would talk about, you know, how great it was to have all these ideas and think about things in, in ways that they never had thought about before. We're, we're in a slightly different era, so, so I don't know that it, it works as well. I mean, I think it does not work as well as the AD&D uh, DMG did, even though it tries to do that. But this premise is more around home design campaigns and, and reading over like just the intro. None of it really says, hey, you could run in any number of ways. Here are some various ways. And even the player's handbook doesn't really say, hey, you know, here are all these different types of games you might be involved in. Um, that one, I think, is just squarely very generic, right? It, it focuses on what's doing rather than looking at the larger game for most of it. Um, so I, th I think there is that that slant uh, to to this book um, of defaulting to home. Statistically, almost any poll I've seen shows a, a you know, more than half of players um, or DMs or whatever it is working with a homebrew home design campaign rather than running published adventures. And that is particularly shocking because that would be the group that would be most likely to be undercounted. So seeing enough polls that show this, especially ones that have, you know, thousands of people taking these polls is kind of like alarming because it means that a lot of the material 
should actually probably be a little more like the DMG and, and speak to it. I, I, I still think it, it, you know, it's good to have a cover the bases a little more widely, but, but it might be that that really is the audience, right? See, I see it the opposite way. I see it. Those polls, those polls are generally taken by people who are most invested in the game. Mm. And the people who are most invested in the game are more likely to think about their own games and create their own games. And, and you know, that's just my opinion. Maybe. I think I would say, wouldn't you say that most, most DMs have probably run like the starter set? Or at least taken ideas from the starter set? Because if you're new to the game, if you're new to the game, you go and you buy the thing that is most likely to give you what you need. And that's the starter set. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, the, you know, 5e started with the starter set um, and then and the player's handbook. So so in some ways that was, uh, if you started right when the edition came out, that makes a lot of sense. I My experience is colored by going to gaming stores around the nation and mm -hmm. finding just a surprising disconnect between the folks there and anything online. And so mm -hmm. like none of those folks take polls. <laughs> and right. a lot of the folks that come into the stores come in because they're buying stuff and often leaving. But they kind of go like, well, all right, I'll try this little you know game or I'll hang out here. I'll talk to you for a bit. And, and that's where I'd get to interact with them before they disappeared back into the Neverland where they normally dwell just with their own home game group. Right. And so I, I just think there's a vast number of people that operate the way we did before the internet existed. Like I am playing with my buddies. We run our game our way. We don't connect to the greater world that's out there. And I doubt that group, that kind of demographic is just running things as written. I think they're just exploring the game in their particular way as, as we did you know, back in the yeah. 80s and 90s and so on. Sure. I, I could totally I see that. But, but it's uh, a good question. And, and I think, the, yeah. yeah, where were you going to go with it? Oh, the other question is about the majority of groups, not, you know, don't play or don't play published adventures. Mm -hmm. It's It's hard to say, but I believe the DMG has to trust adventures to tell people how to use them. So yeah. the content of the Dungeon Masters guys can help people create their own stuff, even if it is a published adventure. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they're doing that in the next Dungeon Masters guide, as we will talk about in a bit. Right. They are putting in, a, like, I think Chris said, a an actual campaign. Mm -hmm. So that not that's not necessarily an adventure, but it's it's the best way to teach. Right. Yeah. Is to I want you to do this. Here are 12 examples of different things you could do to use as a template. So, you know, if you want people to create good adventures, you can tell them how to do it, but you also want to show them how to do right. it. Right. Right. And so I think that's that's hopefully an important step in all of this as well. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um and I and I guess it's it's interesting to to think through whether the um ph the, you know should the player's handbook have a default assumption or to what extent it should speak to different types of games like that because mm -hmm. it, it can be different to say hey you know work with your dm or or you know understand the limits of a published adventure that you may be in you know that could be advice for a player but but it isn't currently 
And but I mean that's what organized play is, right? That's number one mm-hmm. on your player list is you have to realize that you are in an adventure and yeah. it is a walled adventure and trying to go outside of the walls, your DM could do that, but you will have a better experience if you understand that you are in a movie and yeah. you are going to follow the thread of this movie instead of just running off and doing something that the movie going audience does not really want to see. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So thank you to both uh, Chappie and Graham for those amazing questions. Yeah. Now let's talk about the news and a good bit of news. The largest bit of news was that interview interview with Jeremy Crawford on uh, on D&D Beyond. We will get to that in our main segment, as I said. So let's talk about Critical Role. I've heard of those folks. Yeah, yeah and they've got a presence. Yeah, and along with their Darrington Press uh, allegiance, they are going to publish not one, but two new role-playing games, as well as a new board game. So the name of the board game is Queen by Midnight. It is sort of a deck-building RPG-ish game as far as I could tell and then the two role-playing games are called Illuminated Worlds and Daggerheart. Daggerheart is going to be the larger more long-form role-playing game and Illuminated Worlds is sort of a shorter limited campaign mm-hmm. role-playing game. Yeah more and of an indie type experience it sounds like. Exactly and so you can there Darrington Press gave an inaugural state of the press Uh, video and press release so i'm going to withhold my judgment or comments on that till i see a little bit more except to say more games is more better so i hope that these are amazing and they do exactly what they want and find an audience who want to have a particular game experience in both watching the well really in watching this this state of the press video i mean one of the things that struck me is that critical role is able to operate at a scale and in a way that other companies can't, right? So you, it doesn't matter if there's been a, a role-playing game out there that's you know been around for 20 years. Critical Role has the capability to throw together a video that looks so polished with special mm-hmm. effects and beautiful sets and the lighting's just so and the makeup and all of this. Everything looks amazing. And the board game looks like super cool with, you know, while it's obviously cardboard structure still, it's it's like, you know, really nice pieces to this board game um, that they clearly have invested in. This is not a cheap board game to manufacture and the video is not cheap to run, but they have in-house people who do these kinds of effects. Right. So they can operate at a very professional level in ways that that uh, few can. Does that translate to sales? Not clear, right? I mean, they clearly yeah. have the audience and the platform for it, but but we'll have to see what what the success uh, will be of of especially Daggerheart because that's something that could be a big deal at a at a time when lots of companies are trying to enter into this space and 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 maybe grab some market share and some attention, right? Mm-hmm. And that's been the multi million dollar question for several years now. Is yes, critical role is a phenomenon it's amazing it has so many fans 
do those fans buy buy board games? Do those fans buy role playing games? Yeah. Uh, and as you said, we still the jury's still out on that. Partly because we don't have hard and fast numbers, uh, so it's yeah. I mean, the, the numbers we do have suggest that it isn't. Uh, you know, so far they have not. Uh, you know, caused endless reprints of the the D and D critical role books. Right, as sales are fine. Right, they're they're good. Yeah. Um, the Amazon show is getting rebooted, but it's not something that you find being talked about everywhere. Right, so. How does that work? Well, you know, it'll we'll have to see. And and especially could you know, would that translate to an effect where if they shifted and said, we're going to use Daggerheart now as the role playing game that drives all our streaming shows. Does that mean Daggerheart sales in a huge amount? Maybe, maybe not. Right. It's it's yeah. Who knows? (laughs) An interesting story to follow. Mm -hmm. An interesting story to follow up on is that the game Into the Motherlands will now be published by Green Ronin. So Into the Motherlands was a Kickstarter, and the game itself was supposed to have been published by, is it Andrews McNeil? Yeah. yeah. Which then shut down its RPG side of things, leaving Into the Motherlands with no publisher. Well, Green Ronin has picked it up and now will become the publisher. And everyone seems happy about it. Green Ronin seems happy about it. The principles behind Into the Motherland seems happy about it. So we will get the game uh, published. It will just be in a new with a new publisher. Yeah, I think it's a a tough one to watch. Um, lots of us want to see Into the Motherlands succeed, um, but it's in that tough place where it launched without rules and at first it thought well we're going to use the cortex system uh the cortex system license is problematic so we're not going to do that we're going to write our own game system which is as those of us in the industry know not easy and and so so it's it's a tough place right where you you really want to cheer them on and, and see this succeed but there's a lot of peril in the course that's being taken uh having and, and then losing their publisher. So now they've got a, a publisher. So we know the books will be printed. They'll be distributed. They'll appear in stores. Cool. Will, will, will it take off beyond there? Is, is, is who, who knows, right? Um, but, but hopefully this is a success story for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. And another bit of crowdfunding news. This one interesting because it's coming from a sort of different direction. Is that there will be a Gloomhaven role-playing game that will crowdfund on backer kit rather than Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Okay. That in itself is pretty big news. Yes. Uh, and for those of you who are not familiar with Gloomhaven, it's a board game. It's a massive board game that kickstarted to multi-million dollars and in, you know, continuing great sales. And it's sort of, it's a, it's a board game that, treads quite heavily into role-playing game territory Mm -hmm. so now the question is will the role-playing game capture the imagination and capture the money of the people that are board gamers who are now being pushed gently toward the role-playing game (laughs) and the answer right now seems to be probably because there are already thirty thousand people who have signed up for the campaign to follow the campaign itself. And it won't even 
launch until June. Wow. So that's a lot. That shows that uh, Gloomhaven and its follow-up, which was, was it Frosthaven? I think. think. Yeah. Uh, Are, you know, has at least the, the capacity and the probability of being able to compete in the RPG field. We know their game design is solid because it's a solidly designed board game. We'll see how that translates. <laughs> Taking that extra step into the role-playing game uh, field, which yeah. can be can be difficult. So, so we'll find out. And on the Kickstarter side, Kickstarter side versus backer kit side, right? That all yeah. is interesting to watch. There are, and there are a number of other crowdfunding platforms that are out there. Um, and so as, as that situation develops, it'll be interesting to see what kind of success they have comparatively here. And one of the things that's tough is it's never a direct comparison, right? So this is not an expansion of Gloomhaven. So it's just, you know, will this be a huge success story as an RPG? And how do you compare that to how they did with their Kickstarters? Will they go back to Kickstarter, for example, for their next actual expansion? Or, we, we, you know, we don't yeah. know, right? But it's interesting to see that develop. Yep. Fun, another fun thing to keep an eye on. So, Teos, have you uh, have you ever played at a really large gaming table, like a single I, table? I've played at a table with more than thirty people. I ran the same a, thing. Almost. I ran a forty-two person table once uh, during an interactive in Living Greyhawk. Mm-hmm. But and we've played at some pretty large events, some some big events, but. The Guinness Book of World Records tells us that this past Saturday, the world record was set for the largest D&D game ever with 1,227 players. That is big. <laughs> uh, that that's that is a lot of players. You want to you want to take us down this uh this Yeah, path yeah, so this this took place games. at the Provo Town Center in Provo, Utah. And the event organizer Andrew Ashby, uh his family has a game store there. And I guess the mall had told Andrew, you know, hey, if you ever want to throw like a big event, we'll work with you. And I, apparently for like eight years, Andrew sort of saved up and worked on this concept and then ran 200 tables with up to seven players at each table. There is a head DM, Dax Levine, who worked a story around Vecna with the tables all playing the same event to stop Vecna's undead army and save some uh, city. And uh, and and so, you know, seeing the pictures and reading the article about this, which we've got a link to in our show notes, it's a lot of fun. One interesting thing is Guinness said that they would need to have more than 500 players. And I thought, well, I know for sure there have been a number of events that have had more than 500 players. One of them uh, I helped run the 2014 D&D Crypt Garden uh, Adventures League Interactive that really kind of kicked off the AL uh, when when the 5B rule set came out. We had, I think, uh, 101 tables, but, you know, and we had 700 players or so. Um, there have been some Paizo Gen Con events that may have been larger than that um, that took place around that time frame. So I know we had more than 500 uh, players uh, that the Guinness record said they needed, but 1,227 is, that's a hard one to meet. Like, that's, that's a, yeah. you know... And we've been actually on the Baldman Games Discord. There's been a, a fun discussion about, you know, could you do this? And would you even want to do this outside of a special event? And the answer is probably not, because 
you don't want to lock up that many DMs for just one four hour or however long block, right? But but so it kind of doesn't make sense except in this kind of format. Yeah, I know I, even outside of the Crypt Garden thing, Bald Man Games at Gen Con has run events that have at least over 100 tables. And if you assume seven players, six players in a DM, that's that's well over, that's you know closing in on a thousand. And it, it is too much. You you want it, you don't want it to be official. Because when you say official, like an Adventures League thing or a Wizards Run thing, the the fun of it can break down yeah. if you try to make the interactive portion impo- an important part of the story. So you almost want to run a thing that's not official, that you just have these 200 tables and they're all doing their own thing. And yeah, you know, oh, everyone succeeded. Yay, we beat Vecta's army. But to try to pull <laughs> off the logistics of a really interactive event there, which you want to do if you're running an official Adventures League, uh, Wizards of the Coast event, uh, it's you need a, a cast of thousands. And, and you know, Sean, you, you and I have had these kinds of discussions when we worked on things like the um, the Open. Uh, I, I don't know if you remember this, but my sort of number one criteria for the success of such large events. Do you remember what what it is that I would always say? And I don't remember. It's the sound system. Yeah. Oh, for and sure. Nobody ever remembers this. And, and everybody yeah. always says, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll have a great sound system. And then someone shows up with like a paper cone or a handheld speaker. And I laugh because I've worked in audio a lot and I know. There is no way anyone's hearing us with what you've provided. And, and even at the 2014 Crypt Garden event, there were, you know, two large-ish speakers, uh, which was sufficient for some people to hear the event. But there were a lot of people who could not hear and DMs who could not hear and misran things. And, and you know, that's that's the thing that no event ever thinks to invest in properly. The, it's it, the sound system so you can hear what is happening is so critical and we even had like flags and stuff so that it wasn't all just audio based and it's still it's a big problem to the experience yep we always end up with master of the multiverse sean molly standing on a chair or on a balcony just screaming uh, instructions or box text out to all the tables and he has the voice for it and lots of practice but it doesn't uh doesn't be a good sound system yeah so Shout out to those people who are loud. Yes. So that was the largest D&D game ever. And we're going to end our news segment. I am going to be on the D&D Beyond Twitch. However, because we are in the past, speaking toward the future, I will have you, been. You were on, on. the D&D Beyond uh, live Twitch stream. Ben Byrne of Ghostfire Gaming and I are going to go on and talk with Latia and Sarah about uh, about what we do at Ghostfire, some of the things we've done, what we're working toward, and about you know, D fun in general. So Fantastic. you can check that out on the D D Beyond Twitch stream. Yeah, we've got a link in the show notes to where you'll find the video uh, on demand. Um yeah. and that's great news because it means that that, you know, we were there for the Forge of Foes and it was sort of talked about as this may be the first of a series that that shares a spotlight, shines a spotlight on third party publishers and smaller companies. And and that's great. I was worried that they might look around and say, well, I don't know who else would we really put on? You know, it's hard to find individuals that are really creating printed materials and larger materials that reach a wide audience. So 
seeing this happen is is great and very encouraging. I'm excited. Good job, D&D, to be awesome. On. Well, I'm glad you and Mike and Scott didn't kill it. We'll see what Ben and I can do. <laughs> what kind of havoc we can wreak. But now we get to our main topic today, which is let's read the Dungeon Master's Guide. We did this with the player's handbook, and it was quite popular. And when we did our poll of what do you want to see next, it was very close between something like look at other games and look at the Dungeon Master's Guide. So we're going to take a break. We're still going to look at other games, but we're going to sort of alternate with looking at other games, checking out the Dungeon Master's Guide, or maybe doing an interview again. So we'll we'll keep keep the... We'll keep all of our plates in the air as we spin those bad boys as fast as we can. <laughs> Another reason that we're going to do reading Dungeon Master's Guide now is because we got a great video this past week from Chris Perkins, who talked about working on the new version of the Dungeon Master's Guide that will be part of what was called 1D&D, which is now just called... Yeah, it's 5e. So the next 5e Dungeon Master's Guide is being worked on. And so let's talk first about what Chris talked about. And then we can look at the current Dungeon Master's Guide, both as its own discrete work and as something that is going to be changed based on what Chris and his team have seen from its users. And, and we've seen now a couple of different ways that information has been disseminated. We had the D&D Direct uh, information that was shared at the D&D Summit. Uh, and by the time this airs, I'll have a blog up that actually will, will the last of the blogs on the D&D Summit. And I'll talk about some of the DMG Players Handbook and Monster Manual Revision information that they shared. There are also other folks out there who covered it for the summit. Um, and then we've had some additional marketing videos and then this video. And in the marketing videos, one thing that I haven't heard mentioned widely, but I thought was really fascinating, is the deck of many things. There's a product that centers around it, and it's going to have the deck in it and more cards than before. So the, the mm -hmm. list of things that can happen that you can pull from is expanded. So that'll be interesting to see. I thought that was fun. Yeah, that's funny. So let's look at the new proposed DMG format. And Chris was very clear in his video saying that there are wonderful, and he emphasized wonderful things that we can do to make a, the DMG a more and better user experience. And that's very true. But my question then is, which users? Mm. Because you have many different users with many different wants for a Dungeon Master's Guide. So it's great to say that we're going to make a new user experience it's then figuring out which users you're going to create this for. And as we mentioned earlier, it sounds like they're now moving from people who know how to run a game to people who may be learning how to run a game with this new Dungeon Master's Guide. So yeah. I'll oh, did you want to say something? Well, I mean, we're, I know we're going to dig into this throughout this series and, and even today, but but I think that's the fascinating question is how do you strike this balance between the audiences, uh, the writing style, the the material? It is an incredible task. It's, it's almost like, you know, if you pulled a, a wish and, you know, the wish is going to be twisted in some way, it would be like, well, you've been granted writing the Dungeon Master's Guide. And then you'd realize, oh, wait, 
<laughs> this mm-hmm. is fraught with peril. <laughs> yes. It's it's the old may you get everything your heart mm. desires curse. Mm. Right. So here's what Chris said will be in the Dungeon Master's Guide 5E revised. First, he said there will be a section on the basics, introducing the game rules and being a DM. Then he said there will be a section on walking through common situations that DMs go through, some of the things that can come up during play, especially the problematic parts, the traps, as he called them, and how to address those issues when they come up. So he didn't say chapter. He said section for one and two. Then he said chapter three. Mm -hmm. So I can assume that he meant the first two chapters were those basics and walking through common situations. Chapter three is the rules compendium specifically things not in the player's handbook. And he talked about sort of an alphabetical listing. And later Mm -hmm. he called it the rules cyclopedia. So Mm -hmm. probably that's sort of just two words that mean the same thing. Yeah. Chapter four would be adventure building. Chapter five would be campaign building. Chapter six is cosmology. Chapter seven would be magic items. Chapter eight would be a surprise. Then there would be some appendices as well as a poster map. And when asked what's on the poster map, Chris said, that's a surprise. surprise. So two surprises. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because there's the poster map and the appendices include a map appendix and a lore glossary appendix. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting. What is this poster map going to be that, that would be helpful? Hmm. Yeah, I that's that's a, a the next few uh Topics of conversation across the internet will be, what are the surprises that are in the chapter eight and poster map? But he also mentioned pulling in DMG-worthy material from sources like Tasha's. And he gave a session zero uh, description and how-to as something that was in Tasha's that should be in the Dungeon Master's Guide, which makes absolute perfect sense. Yeah. But it, it, it is one of the reasons that they said at the D&D Summit that, you know, in general, 5e will not, 2014 5e will not require conversions, but they're taking so much out of Tasha's and Xanathar's that those books will, will be reprinted because they're going to, things will be duplicative or, or counter each other because they're borrowing from that, right? If you think of like Tasha's and all the things that, uh, classes can choose right as optional pieces a lot of that's being brought into the unearthed arcana and the 2024 version so it becomes redundant and even confusing so they're going to be reprinted we saw this in fourth edition as well when this the dmg2 came out Mm -hmm. they pulled out pieces of other content and gave Mm -hmm. it as examples and i know this because someone came up to me and said, I loved your contributions to the Dungeon Master t- Guide 2. And I said, I did not contribute to the Dungeon Master's Guide 2. And they <laughs> said, yes, you did. So I went and I looked, and sure enough, they had taken a uh, skill challenge that I had written into one of my dungeon delves, <laughs> pulled it out, and put it into the Dungeon Master's Guide as one example of a way that you could create and run a skill challenge so <laughs> you thought gee i have, wish you'd ask me about this because i probably would have been too you know fine-tuned it or yeah. something yeah that's mm-hmm. you know we'll, we'll 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 take what we can get uh but that's something that they've done in the past so we know that they're you know willing and able to do so but there is also 
so much third-party material out there that's in existence, that's already been written, and that's already beloved, like the Lazy Dungeon Master's Guide from, from Mike Shea. Like any number of videos, any number of blogs, any number of things that have taken people's experiences, taken their work from previous editions, and updated it and put it into a form that's very easy to use. And so, you know, Wizards of the Coast could just as easily find that material and in this case let the person know that they're you're going to use it and you know pay them for it and and put it out there that you could you could do that now i'm sure that wizards also wants to create their own uh material put their own spin on it and so on but you know that is that's something that's there that they could leverage from the community if they needed yeah for sure but but if they if they think to do it that way, uh, that's I mean that's the question I keep going to is what kind of book do you want to write? And, mm-hmm, for and sure. Do you know why you want to write a certain type of book? It's it's a hard question. Yeah, and that what goes to this next question. The next question Chris was asked was, what is the most frequent comment or question that you get about the Dungeon Master's Guide? And it, Chris uh, Chris said, the thing he gets the most is, oh, I didn't know that was in there. Because the lack of structure, the lack of clarity, uh, the lack of organization in the Dungeon Master's Guide showed that people don't know that there are firearms in that book because it's not called out in any way. It's sort of stuck in the middle of a chapter on that is ostensibly on something else that doesn't easily draw the attention of Dungeon Masters who want fire to use firearms in their games. The D&D Summit, he said, he hears three common complaints. I don't know what's in it, I can't find it, and I don't use it. And so all the changes are trying to improve on those issues. So I'm glad they heard those issues because they are, you know, they are important and for sure you see them. But it's easy to, to point at the problem. It's really hard to point at the solution. That's that's, that's the thing, right? It's like, it's one thing with the player's handbook. Like, there are easy ways. Like, you can look and say, like, oh, Here's how you solve these various problems. With the Dungeon Master Guide, Master Guide it's harder because it's like, to what extent are you just inspiring? Uh, to what extent are you providing content that I might use once and never want to read again? But that first read is really important, especially if it's all around a new player, right? That might be super well worth doing, and I'm never going to read it again or seldom read it again, right? Because I've, I'm, I'm done. I went through it. Yeah. And one thing to look at is how do people use it and how do people want to use it? Because what you are giving people are the tools to create their own experiences because the game is a tool to create their own experiences. So looking at it as a textbook rather than a game book is one direction that you could go because you're teaching people how to use this game. Uh, But there are, so many game masters out there who do not want to be taught, right? They want to create on their own and they want not to, they don't want to learn how to do it. They just want to do it. And you give them the tables that they need to roll on to do it. So it it is, it is a problem without a perfect solution. Yeah, It's just several imperfect solutions that you do to the best of your ability. And I think also what that, else? Oh, 
just the, okay. today's world is so different than the world of the AD&D DMG. There are so many sources of information out there, so many different ways to get things that what the book should try to do has to take into account that, right? So how do you make this book? If you want this book to be one to which DMs turn to time and time again versus read through once and then are done, absorb, done, that, that's a really different thing that you have to do. And, and it's hard to think through how do you make this repeatable and useful? And, and, and I love looking at comparing the different versions. Like, like when I compare, you know, the return to the lazy dungeon master and how it approaches telling you about things and providing a process that you will use. Um, so it's very, it's very process oriented and it's very, you know, follow these steps. And whenever you're running a game session, you might want to refer back to these steps, right? And, and there are some useful tables and things like that, but that's what it's about. Or, you know, the DMG and the DMG2 for fourth edition, they do a very different approach as well into how they educate the DM and then provide tools that it, first, it's really nice advice. And it's advice that very cleverly dances between what a new player needs to hear and an experienced player needs a DM and needs to hear in a way that pleases both, which is super hard to do, while then also giving you these tools that you want to come back to to do things like, you know, yeah, monster themes or traps or any kind of things that you're going to want to drop in. And that's that's an interesting, it's a hard approach to, to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Chris also said that there will be more common magic items put into the Dungeon Master's Guide, as well as more magic items overall. Uh, stray bits that are from other sources or stray bits from the dungeon master's guide itself that are in locations that are hard to find will be brought into the rules cyclopedia. There will be more show and instead of more telling. So give examples of the things that this content is talking about as well as an outline for a full campaign. And as I said earlier, those outlines, those templates can be super important for teaching how to structure something in a way that makes sense. Yeah, a point that Chris Perkins makes that I think is a really great point is that if a new DM or even experienced DM looks at what's out there from Wizards, all of it is so incredibly polished and set up for publication, for printing, for display, all of that, that it doesn't reflect what you need to run an adventure that you improvised at the table. And similarly for a campaign, all you see are these enormous published books. But what should your campaign look like when you're setting up? What should your adventure look like? Right. And so, you know, my typical session is a, a, a page of bullet points. Right. Like that's mm -hmm. that that's what I do. But when I write for publication, it's so vastly different than that. And so th this idea of showing DMs what these examples should look like um, is cool. And I mean, that's one of my favorite things in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master is that it provides a very concrete example of a sample campaign from levels one to 20 and makes it super easy to read that example and know how you would do that for a different type for your own choice of what your plot kind of story is. And that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. We get a tell from Chris that they are going to provide some history for D and D lore probably in that appendix. So when we mention Mordenkainen and we mention the abyss and we mention those sorts of things, people can be on the same page. What do you, what do you, do you think that's important? 
I think it can be important to have a common language that we fall back on. And this, again, I'm going to keep going back to teaching and I apologize, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, no. but when we start the D and D section of the class, which is sort of the last third of the class, we have 60% of the students who, when I say, you know, challenge rating, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Whereas the people who aren't don't. And so I think it can be important to, to, to understand what Greyhawk is, mm -hmm. to understand these larger terms. You don't have to give a full paragraph, but just something for people to look up when, when we're talking about these acronyms, when we talk about certain things, to just have a place to go look it up very easily so as a glossary rather than as you know a full-on chapter on its own. Okay. I, yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. I, I, I keep thinking about this and, and wondering whether that's a space well spent versus whatever else could be there. And and maybe it is, but I also just feel like one one of the things that Chris said. I forget if it's a video. The summit was or the summit was. There's a lot of misinformation out there online, and mm -hmm. I kind of thought, well, sure, but also some of the best lore is actually found online too and and D, &D sources can be wrong you know and, and so sometimes mm -hmm. you know the fr wiki can be the best place to find anything about the forgotten realms now it may have multiple editions worth of information but that's the reality of the lore and mm -hmm. and sometimes you find things that are clearly a home campaign but that might be exactly the kind of thing you want anyway because it's just ideas for how to use these people and villains and whatever so i i don't know yeah it's interesting mm -hmm. Again, I think if it's kept short, I think if it's an appendix, it mm -hmm. gives wizards the ability to capture the narrative that they want to capture with with what these things are. And that that's one way to help with misinformation is just to say this is what we at Wizards of the Coast think these words are and what these words mean. Mm -hmm. yeah. What else do we get from Chris? We, can, we, I, can I go we back a second? Chris. You know what you I sure want? Can? I what would want? rather it be a super short description, which is what I guess they're planning, but then a what to do with us, like like adventure seeds or something like that. Like, give me that next bit that makes me want to use that information. Mm -hmm. That, of course, requires more space. But then I think I'd have that utility I'd want out of it. You know, sure. Tell me what the red wizards of they are, but then inspire me to use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I could see that. I don't know how, but we'll find out. What else do we get from Chris? We get Chris talking about why he loves being a DM. And that needs to be captured in the Dungeon Master's Guide. So he talks about the power of storytelling, the fun of getting together with friends and telling a story. But D&D &D storytelling is different from other storytelling because of the spontaneous eruption that comes from the randomness that D&D brings, the rolling a 20, the rolling a natural one. And so that also needs to go into the Dungeon Master's Guide to be able to let people use the power of that sort of role-playing game storytelling at the table with their players. And he talks about the creativity that players can bring to the table, both in terms of the storytelling 
aspect of the game, but also in just the game mechanics of why are you choosing to use that spell at that particular time and the fun that that brings to the player, the DM, and the other players at the table to say, ooh, I never thought of using that spell in that way. Let's see what happens. Then he goes into the fact that this uh, that this is more than just fifth edition while it's still fifth edition. He talked about the Dungeon Master's Guide not being a 10 out of 10 product, and they recognize that. And so they're doing this not only to you know make a new version of fifth edition, but to make this book a 10 out of 10 in terms of its usefulness for players. And he admitted that the resources they had when they were making fifth edition were limited. They were doing uh, the three core books at the same time as the starter set at the same time as the dragon spear castle bridge book between D and D next and fifth edition. And that the dungeon master's guide had to wait in line uh in terms of the resources that were available, which led to it not being the one of the reasons why it wasn't the 10 out of 10 that they were hoping it would be. And, and, and clearly they have a much larger staff now, but I guess I still worry. And maybe it's just because of the, you know, I work in organizations where all the time we will say, let's give this the proper time it needs. And then we don't have the proper time it needs because Wizards, while they have more people on staff, they are doing more than ever before. They are in the middle of any number of projects right now that are being published and written and released and stuff and finalized in different stages. You get pulled into all these meetings all the time for these things that they've just reorganized. Uh, you know, re, the, the company has, has reorganized. Um, you know, there are all kinds of things. And and so is there really that much more time for the Dungeon Master's Guide? I hope so. But I'm, I'm not... Mm-hmm convinced and 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 also because when you have when you have this sort of challenge of saying like well what should the book do differently you need a lot of voices to workshop all of this and then bring it together and i think you know one interesting thing is when you look at the fourth edition dungeon master's guide is how many people did writing for it in different ways mm-hmm. that was really rather expertly woven together so it reads like one voice um, but there's a surprising number of people and, and really smart people, right? Like Robin Laws, who provided information for it. And it ends up in, in that book, even though it ostensibly, you know, has like two names on the cover. I guess James Wyatt is on the cover of the DMG. But it's so many people actually writing that. And I, I wonder whether that is being done here or is it, you know, Chris getting locked in a room? And, you know, if you have to lock someone in a room, Chris is one of the best people to do that. But for this type of goal, I think you want a lot of people doing a lot of thinking, taking the time. And right. I worry they're all very busy and, and we don't really have that right. much more time. I don't know. Well, and that's why I made that point about stuff from other products being brought into the Dungeon Master's Guide. Yes, bringing it in from Tasha's is great. We have a ton, more than ever, of voices out there who have already done the work of what needs to go into a Dungeon Master's Guide. You know it, and I know it. And we could, you and I, just two individuals who are, you know, in the industry, not necessarily the heartbeat of the industry, but but we've been around. We could send them a list of 10 books 
that if you take the content from this, you will be getting the information that dungeon masters need. And there is in organizations, a hesitation to do that. There is within individual egos, a hesitation to do that. And sometimes everything comes together and the, the perfect book is created. (laughs) And more often than not, despite great talent, but despite great intentions, despite lots of resources being thrown at a problem, it still does not get to the level that it could. Yeah. Yeah. I love reading accounts of like Steve Winter would talk about redoing 2E or creating 2E and all of the things they wanted to change, but couldn't for reasons, political, organizational, Mm -hmm. timing, cost, you name it you know, had to be scrapped, even though they knew these things should be done differently and just he could not. Right. <laughs> and and you and I have been around the world so many times in terms of business and stuff and experiences. And we know that this is not a Wizards of the Coast problem. No, This is not a Hasbro problem. This is a human being in a organization problem yeah. that every organization has. And every organization will always have throughout the till the end of time, because organizations are imperfect in their structure. Yeah, but that's where if you want to be the best, you are constantly trying to fight those battles to create the processes, the communication, the organization that leads to that facilitates it, you know, improves your chances that it will be fantastic. And so I hope that. Yep. Chris finally at the end of the interview talked about the monster manual for just a second. He says it's going to be bigger, maybe the biggest one ever. I assume he means the biggest monster manual from wizards of the coast ever, because at the end of second edition, that monstrous compendium, if you filled that binder uh, was, was quite large. Uh, he, there there will be new monsters added to fill in some gaps. There will be a reorganization of it. There will, they will also be updating the monsters to make them more fun to play, more easy to play, and get to the right power level for the CRs. The CRs will not change, but everything else about the monster may change, as we saw with Monsters of the Multiverse. And there will be new art, not just in the Monster Manual, but across all of those books. Anything else about specifically about Chris's talk, because we will get into the current Dungeon Master's Guide, if you so choose. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Why don't we just start with the introduction? Yeah. And then next time or next time we talk about the Dungeon Master's Guide, we will do our read through of it. So the current introduction to the Dungeon Master's Guide has a few things, a few quotes that I thought were telling, uh, amusing or spot on. And the first thing is the first words of the new dungeon masters or the 5e dungeon masters guide is it's good to be the dungeon master. <laughs> it's good to be and the king. Yes, it, it absolutely is good to be the dungeon master. As long as you have the right instruction manual to tell you how to do it. As long as you have the right tools at your disposal to be the dungeon master. As long as you have the right players who are ready and willing to be the people who are partaking of your dungeon master style and instruction and story. 
as well as you have an understanding of what you <laughs> want to get out of your game so that you can do the right things to make that game happen and on and on and on. So it's good to be the dungeon master asterisk. Yeah. It says the dungeon master's guide assumes that you know the basics of how to play our D&D tabletop role-playing game. If you haven't played before, the Dungeon Dungeons and Dragons starter set is a great starting point for new players and DMs. And that's where I went, oh, we're already in trouble here. If within the introduction to your book, you're saying go somewhere else, if you really want to learn how to do this, that's trouble. Even if it said go to the player's handbook, I would have been, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But go to this other product that may not be exactly what you want it to be that oh that's trouble and, and and of course it's a bit myopic in that it it imagined that the dnd starter set would always be there with clarity and yet we've had several starter sets and mm -hmm. so which one right does the stranger things starter set count you know <laughs> can i use the um what was the 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 other cartoon one? You know, yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you right. don't want to use that. But what what one was it? Oh, it's uh, I, uh, oh, yeah. You have to look back over your Rick and Morty. Too. Rick and Morty. I'm right. like Bob use the and Rick Henry and Morty now. starter set. Is is that the great starting point that I must read before doing this? And so, yeah, I agree with you. That is that is a an interesting choice, and it's very different than say 4e starts its intro is how to be a dm and it the first line is not very inspirational it's most games have a winner and a loser but and it goes on to really baby you through what is dnd mm -hmm. very different approach right like yeah yep so there we go uh so this initial section that describes what the dm does contains good stuff it mentions you're going to do world building and there are campaigns and there are adventures and there are sessions and monsters and traps and treasure and storytelling and role playing. And the one word that I think is the most important word for a DM to learn is not mentioned not only in that section, but not mentioned in any of these sections mm -hmm. in any explicit way is the word encounter. That's interesting. That is where the dungeon master and the players come together and meet and start to tell their stories. And in no nowhere in this in this intro or in this book per se, do they say where you and the players meet each other is during encounters where you act in a certain way and they act in a certain way and all this fun happens. Uh, and I hope that with when you get to the, new version of the 5e dungeon master's guide there will be lots and lots and lots of information about the encounter and about telling the dungeon master where they and their players are going to going to rub together and start a fire yeah the fire yeah. of a fun game yeah i agree with you fully it's um it's it's not that it's a bad start but it's one that I think misses its mark on on what it should be trying to do with that initial text, and I, and I think they do see that right from the interviews that suggest that we're going to go back and tell you the basics of the game. It sounds like they're going to try to change this to to do that more. Mm -hmm. And they also then say these rules are organized into three parts. The first part will help you decide what kind of campaign you'd like to run. 
The second part will help you create the adventures, the stories that will compose the campaign and keep the players entertained from one session to the next. And the last part will help you adjudicate the rules and modify them to suit your style of campaign. And when it's said that way, it sounds like it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, tell me what I'm going to be doing and then help me do that and then help me with the minutia. But is that the right order? Is it the right order if it's done correctly? Or is it the wrong order even if you do it well? I don't and it know. goes it goes back to what Graham's saying, right? Like if especially if this book was thinking, hey, you just finished either reading or running the starter set. Now I'm gonna tell you how to build a world. Wait, does that make sense? Does that mm -hmm. flow? You know, is that what the DM is looking for? And why is the information here not helping you run the starter set well set well or you know it's it's hmm yeah should a starter set be a part of the dungeon master's guide hmm. yeah is it mandatory it, that you buy the three core books and the starter set and read the starter set first is that the right. is that the order of things it's not the order of things that one would normally think of <laughs> so i'm i'm going to leave you teos and all our listeners out mm -hmm. there with with just one important question. How would you teach a DM to take on this beast that is running a fun, exciting game of D&D &D for your players? Because that's what we're really talking about here. And that's what we will come back to the next time we talk about Let's Read the Dungeon Master's Guide. Love it. All right. That said, we will thank everyone out there for being a listener. We really do appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to hear us pontificate and provide hopefully good news and entertainment for you. If you enjoy what we do, we ask that you consider becoming a patron of the show. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash mastering DND and Give us just a small bit, um, you know, bit of your well hard earned money to continue to do this. There are people that already do that. They're called Masters of the Realms, uh, Masters of Dungeons, and Masters of the Multiverse. For those who give us just a bit, we thank you so much, you Masters of Dungeons. For Master of the Realms, you get a little extra, you get a mention in our show notes. And for those who give us everything they can, they are the masters of the multiverse. And those people, they get a special shout out. And so Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Post Fiction Audio, RPG Audio, Eric Mengi. The Micro Ant, The Yelling Sean Molly, Falcon <laughs> Neal, Ross, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Krishna Simone Say 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 Hey, Willie Mays, Joe Tyler, Matias Valero at Twin Portals, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you so much. You can help us out also 
by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or on whatever podcatcher that you use to listen to the show. You can also subscribe to our show via YouTube if you would like to see our beautiful faces as you listen to our somewhat beautiful voices. Teos, where can people find you on the internet? Find me at alphastream.org. I'm on Mastodon AlphaStream. And uh, yeah, from my blog, you can get to all the places I hide. Where do we find you, Sean? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Sean Merwin and the podcast on Twitter at Mastering D&D. Uh, the show is also on Mastodon. And I am on Mastodon at Tabletop Social. Yeah, and I want to say... Also... Oh, go ahead. I just want to say that that the I've really appreciated how the Discord uh, that we you know, now have for folks who are members of the Patreon has been fantastic with some really great conversations and questions and things like that. It's been great. The the conversation on there is almost too good because I'm busy at work and something will pop up and I'll be like, oh, let's just go. Oh, that's a great question. Let's have this two hour discussion. Oh yeah. Well, I should probably get back to work now. <laughs> so if you are a, a patron of the show, you get access to that, uh, to that discord server where there are great suggestions, yeah. thoughts, conversations going on. And you can also of course, leave comments on our YouTube channel, the mastering dungeons YouTube channel. So Teos, we are swimming in the sea. That is the new upcoming dungeon masters guide. What are we going to do now? I'm going to flip to the page that tells me in the new DMG uh, how to get 1,278 of my closest friends together so that I can claim the Guinness World Record. We will get right on that. Could it be one player and 1,227 of the their sidekicks? Yeah, or GMs. Like, what if it's all GMs and one player and they just are yelling, like, what to do? I, I like that. I like that. <laughs> Let's let's get that done. <laughs>